Hi, welcome to Parenting the Adlerian Way. I'm your host, Adlerian family counselor and parenting expert, Allison Schaefer. Each week, I answer your burning parenting questions to help reduce the stress of parenting one tip at a time. We'll explore Adlerian psychology together and learn methods of child guidance for raising a happy, confident, capable, resilient child. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hi, it's Allison. Welcome back to the podcast. I am so excited to be meeting for the first time and having a great conversation with Maya Payne Smart. Let me read her bio. Maya Payne Smart is a parent educator, a literary advocate, and the author of Reading for Our Lives, a literacy action plan from birth to six, which is published by Avery Penguin Random House. Her website, mayasmart.com, publishes new book lists, literacy activities, and other free family resources every week to help parents play their dual role, we'll talk about that, as first teachers and educational advocates. She holds a master's degree in journalism, from the Medill School at Northwestern University and a bachelor's in social studies with honors from Harvard University. She serves as an affiliate faculty in educational policy and leadership in the College of Education at Marquette University. Welcome to the podcast, Maya. Thanks so much for having me. So excited to be here and chat with you. I'm very excited about this topic. Um, my grandmother was a children's librarian. And so as, as a child, we got a lot of books and a lot of literary magazines. And I just thought everybody was raised that way. But it turns out that I had a pretty exceptional, special situation. Uh, how did you get into advocacy around literacy? My journey to advocacy really began with becoming a mother. And as a child, I was a big, avid reader. My mom always took me to the library. Our home was full of books. My mom's bookshelf was actually in my bedroom as a child for some reason. So just surrounded by books, was named after an author. And as a parent, I realized that even though I knew a lot about books and literature and wanted my daughter to just love reading, I didn't know anything about the mechanics 
or the skill side of how you become a reader. So it really just began this journey with that question of how do you nurture reading beyond reading to a child? So let's begin there, um, you know, as and, and you've targeted the the early years, the beginning. How do you, how do you start zero to six? How does one if they've got the goal? Because I think most parents would say, I hope I raise a child who reads. Uh, and I, I hold the value that reading is important because I think it makes you a lifelong learner. I, I, I think that if you can stay inspired to read your whole life, you're just going to open, you're going to just beyond high school and university, you're just going to continue to read fascinating things and be a lifelong learner. Um, but you got to kind of get the buzz. You got to get the bug. You got to like it. And it's not always easy for people. And as you say, parents don't know, it's not, can't assume it's going to happen passively. We There's things we have to do, right? Absolutely. And People don't know you can start with babies. People aren't making the connections. Often we have this really narrow idea of what reading is or reading instruction is. And we're thinking about teaching those correspondences between sounds and print on a page. But really what undergirds skilled fluent reading is having a rich vocabulary, a lot of background knowledge and conversations with people in your world, caregivers, siblings, about all of just the words and concepts and things that are going on. So I think that that language piece, that kids need a lot of language and vocabulary in order to one day make meaning out of print is something parents can start working on from day one, just with back and forth exchanges, even with infants. And we have to learn to see or hear their coos and babbles as a kind of conversation and to encourage more vocalizations from our little ones. God, I, and I'm such a big talker. Maybe that's why my kids are good readers. <laughs> Absolutely. There's a huge- there's a huge connection. There yeah. have been studies that have been done with a little device made by the Lena Foundation in Boulder, Colorado, that tracks the the verbal environments of young children. They just put like a little device in their bibs and a pocket on their bibs or shirts. And it counts the words adults speak to them. It counts the words they speak when they're old enough to speak, but also coos and babbles. And it can separate out digestive noises and crying and all of this. And in one longitudinal study, they found that kids who had the most back and forth conversational exchanges from 18 to 24 months, years later, when they were middle schoolers, they had larger vocabularies. They had better expressive language skills. They had higher IQs. So parents don't know that. And so I want to spread that message that, yes, read to them. Yes, make sure they have quality reading instruction in school, but also just talk to your kids and give them opportunities to talk to you. And and it's how we talk to them too, isn't it? Like I remember when I was teaching nursery school and the woman who ran the, nur- as I was getting trained and the woman who was teaching the nursery school said, you know, these kids know how to say, you know, huffleupagus or pterodactyl. You you can say adult words to children. They If they're interested and engaged, they're going to learn big words. Don't talk down. You don't have to say ta. You see these parents like give is ta, ta. Or like often. <laughs> Right? Like there's this baby talk and we think we're meeting them where they're at. But in fact, I'm not sure that's good advice. Yes. I always encourage parents to use actual words, label the things in their environment, talk about the colors and textures and shapes, because it's not like one day a flip switches and they understand. They understand as a result of all of the words we've spoken over time and their increasing experiences with just the language. So why not give them the richness of our actual language from day one? (laughs) Right, right. And then, you know, as you're sort of sitting, I mean, because I think most children like story time, like that's part of a bedtime routine to sit down and read stories. If you're like going through a picture book with a young child, like how do you take that as a, 
not just a parent reading a book to a child at bedtime, but how do you turn that into a more educational, like how do we maximize that opportunity? I guess I'm saying. Yeah, there are a couple simple ways. I always encourage parents and you don't have to do this the whole time you're reading every story, but occasionally drag your finger along the text trace. And that is letting them know that the tech one to pay attention to the print because many kids think you're reading the illustrations. <laughs> and so if you point, then they notice, oh, there are these black marks on the page and, you know, they have something to do with this story and this experience that we're having. But if you drag your finger along, they'll learn that text runs from left to right or from the top to the bottom of the page. If you make reference to the author or the title or some of these other features, if you give the itty bitties a chance to turn pages themselves, they're learning just a lot about the object of the book. And then in terms of conversation, they're asked questions about the book, ask them to point out things. Oh, do you see the yellow banana? Or, you know, depending on the age, your questions will become more sophisticated. But to the extent that you can try to make it interactive sometimes when you're reading. And again, it doesn't have to be every single story, but asking questions, taking turns, all of that applies to reading as well as conversation. Now, a lot of the parents listening will say, look at like, I, I have kids, I value reading, I try to do this with them, um, but they they don't like reading or um, uh, I have to pressure them to read. And I often see this more with boys, you know. Um, so what's going on when when we're trying to do everything so right and be so engaged and they're not having it? <laughs> they, what happens with those non-interested, non-engaged readers? I think as parents, we have to sometimes work to find what they are interested in and meet them where they are and bring more of the materials that they like. So I often hear parents say, oh, they only want to read graphic novels. Well, they're reading something (laughs) and they're getting something out of it. And that time with the graphic novel, the words that they read, all of that does count. And sometimes people's skill level is not where it needs to be for them to be able to enjoy other kinds of reading. So I always particularly if a child is really actively resistant to reading and just doesn't want any part of it, oftentimes there's a skill issue because we are naturally more motivated to do things and more interested in things that we are good at. (laughs) So there's some work sometimes in in matching, finding the right books for that child, either skill-wise or sometimes it's topic-wise. They don't want to read the classic novel that we loved (laughs) they want to read what they want to read. And and for some kids, it's technical manuals or it's online reviews or it's magazines. So we have to be flexible in that respect too, but always dig into it if you think there may be a skill issue at play. Yeah. I mean, to to your point, like there's so much in real world world places to read, whether that's like the ingredients on the side of a cereal box or, um, you know, a street sign. There's language everywhere to be read. So um, maybe it's not always in in that book form that that we kind of call the classic way that kids should be reading. If they're reading at all, that's a good thing. Right. Absolutely. And another thing is to try to make it social to the extent that you can. So pre-COVID, when my daughter was in first, second grade, there was a book club for kids at a local independent bookseller near where we lived. And so I would take her to that book club. And so she had a book to read. Everyone in the group was reading the same book. It was outside of school. It was a fun opportunity to meet other kids and talk about issues and be a part of something. So if there's a way to get a social <laughs> dimension in there, sometimes that helps too. I love that. I love that. 
Um, when does a parent have to worry that there is a skills deficit that might need something above and beyond what a parent's trained to do, like if they have dyslexia or something? At what point, how, how delayed or worried does one have to get before they start thinking assessment or whatever? I encourage parents to um, get assessments earlier, sooner rather than later, just because so many studies show that the earlier the intervention, the more effective it is. If sometimes we people say, oh, you know, it just takes some kids longer. So I think their parents have to be mindful of precursors to reading. So I always encourage parents to, I call it just the GPS method because it's an easy way to remind them of how to get direction when you're navigating these tough issues with your child. But first get grounded in things like developmental milestones, early learning standards for your state, the state standards and early elementary, just to get a sense of what on average kids can typically, you know, know or do at a certain age. And sometimes you may discover a hearing issue or a speech issue with the child, even in those years prior to school. So the G is just like getting grounded in those guidelines. I also encourage parents to take note of their personal reflection. So that's the P in that acronym. And so that's journaling. When you feel like, oh, I think, you know, my child is reading this thing in an unusual way, or they're speaking or whatever it is, parents have these intuitions and sense that something's wrong. I encourage people to write it down on paper or an app on their phone, write the date and what it is that you're observing. And then if it comes up again, write down the date and what you're observing. And sometimes issues, things you were worried about, if, if they fall away, it's no longer an issue, but sometimes things are persistent. And so then you have this information, this kind of log of what you, the parent, have seen in everyday life that you could bring to a specialist. So that's the S, like your pediatrician or your pediatrician may refer you to a speech and language therapist or to do some hearing assessments or vision assessments. So I always say earlier, sooner rather than later, I think around three or four, most kids start to have some interest in print. And then you can make letters a topic of conversation. And then as they approach formal school, they should you should be paying attention to their ability to discern individual sounds within words. So, you know, that's rhyming and clapping. And can they distinguish a beginning sound of a word like the k in cat? Can they sort of manipulate those sounds? If you tell them to put the mm sound there, can they make cat, mat and bat and just all these sort of wordplay um, sound things? Because that's another big barrier for many kids to read. They can't map sounds to letters in print because they can't discern the sounds. 
So I've heard that we've changed. Tell me, you know, you're the expert, so I'm I'm coming at it with the layperson's, you know, going to mess this up. But I heard that one of the that we've changed different ways that we teach kids to read, and that phonetically versus. Um, um, and again, this is where I'm going to get this wrong, but I've, I've heard that their kids can go years where we think they've, they've learned to read and they haven't because what they've done is they've learned to discern the shape of the word. Like a P has a descending tail and around. So like the word plant would have a shape. It would have a, a, a drop and then a couple of words across and then a high part. So they learn the shape, that little shape of the word plant, not the word P, L, A, N, T. And, and we realize that, oh my gosh, we, we've we've missed some major ways of teaching kids and then they switch back and then they go this way and and teachers are saying oh we taught it like this in the 80s and then in the 90s we did it this way and then we realized that was wrong and I ha- have we settled all of that now like do we know how to do it do the experts know how to teach kids to read what, what have we netted out with well there are a couple levels of it so i think there is definitely greater awareness of the value for most children of teaching phonics. So those letter sounds matching the, just the ability to sound out words, teaching that in like a systematic, structured, explicit way. I think there's growing awareness that we should be doing that because so many kids benefit from it, but there's a gap between knowing that (laughs) and having a lot of research to support it and actually giving teachers the right curriculum materials (laughs) so that they can teach that way and also giving them the training and support that they need because most of us don't remember how we were taught to read. And there are so many reading training programs that don't teach teachers how to teach phonics in that explicit systematic way. And some teacher training programs, special ed teachers are given that training, but your general education teachers are not. And so there are a lot of um, kids who are learning to read and it looks successful sometimes in the early years when they have just memorized words whole. (laughs) But there comes a point as vocabulary gets more complex, you're having multisyllabic words, you're needing to read things faster and make sense of it. So you can make sense not just of a word, but a sentence, a paragraph, a whole passage, a whole book. And so you need kind of a little level of automaticity that comes from having a really good foundation in in phonics. (laughs) So I think there's definitely growing consistent Um, consensus around what we need to do, but still a long way to go in training sufficient numbers of teachers to deliver that kind of instruction. And that's part of what you advocate for too, outside of parents, also for teachers. So what about apps? You know, like what I find is that a lot of parents are keeners and so they want to get their kids on the app and they want to put the magnets on the fridge and they want to like really get their kids reading early. And sometimes I think maybe their expectations that they're starting some of this stuff too soon, too aggressively. Like, can you overdo it? I Do think, these apps work? Like, I think with the little ones, the apps don't work. And there are so many um, educational apps, what you're doing is you're developing a habit in your child of looking to a device to to pass the time. And it's you as a parent also (laughs) modeling, like the handing over of the device. What the research indicates for the little ones, let's say two and under, three and under, is they really, they learn and grow. Their brains are nurtured by loving, attentive, back and forth, responsive exchanges with real life humans. <laughs> so like your lap is the best app. I heard someone say that. And I love oh, it. I love that. Your lap <laughs> is the best app. I'm definitely going to borrow that with it. Give me, let me know where the attribution should go to the person <laughs> who came up with that. I love that. 
because the you as a person in that space with that little one, you can see where their eye gaze is going. You can see what they're pointing toward, gesturing at, interested in. And when you respond, that is just opening up all these wonderful learning opportunities that the flaps, flat swiping of a screen just doesn't do for an infant or a toddler. They need you to deliver the words. They need you to provide. In the book, I call it language nutrition. Yeah, I, I even uh, read somewhere uh, something about the difference between you in real life having a child on your lap reading a book together versus putting on a YouTube video where somebody is, you know, because there's a lot of YouTube videos of, of of children's books being read to them. And apparently the, that virtual versus in real life with the same book, the same storytelling changes everything. There is really something about the value of in real life that just can't be replaced virtually. It's it's amazing to me. You know, humans really need other humans to do this work. It's amazing. Yes. There, there are just some things where people are, are irreplaceable at this point. Now, once a kid is a skilled fluent reader, there are some uh, technology-based reading programs that are used in classrooms, and you still need the one-on-one interactions with your teachers. It's just in a classroom setting where there are 25, 30 kids in some cases. You need to have, teachers need to have that ability to have, you know, this group work independently while the teacher spends more time with the student who's struggling on something. So there are, at a certain age, um, positive benefits to using some specific technologies for some specific things. But in the early years, it's all about the parent and those conversations. And so um, because parents feel the weight of responsibility whenever you tell them, you know, uh, if you want to be a great parent, do it this way. And they feel like, oh, the reading people say this and the soccer people say that and they feel a little overwhelmed. Um, how can how can we give them some kind of calm reassurance that that uh, that they've got this, you know, what, or what are the what are the mistakes to avoid just so that the average parent doesn't feel like, oh, God, they just put more on my plate. I can't handle it. <laughs> so I spend a lot of time talking to researchers in a number of fields, neuroscience, psychology, education to ask them, you know, what is the one bit of practical advice that you would give to a parent? Like you've been researching this for decades. You have a PhD. You've done this rigorous statistical analysis. <laughs> like what, what's the takeaway for parents? And what I discovered from talking to all these people is the research is very complex, <laughs> but, and the a process to become an expert in that content takes years, but the actual things a parent would do in the wild, let's say <laughs> in the grocery store or the home with a little kid are very simple. And it's things like, making sure you're having the conversations are not you just talking at the child, making sure it's back and forth and that giving them vocabulary parents are extraordinary vocabulary builders and anything they have a shot of making sense of and print when they begin to read, they need words, background knowledge, context for that. And they get that through conversation with you. So parents should know and be encouraged by the fact that just talking and listening and asking questions is, is incredibly powerful. And we get always get the advice to read books starting when they're little. And a lot of that is just about the parent building the habit. So you'll hear these stories and the ones that stick are the people who read, you know, Harry Potter for an hour every night through all seven books. And that that's not my story. That's not most parents' stories. <laughs> so it's okay to have your treasury of five minute fairy tales or whatever it is that you will actually read and complete but like bring the right energy and responsiveness to the practice 
of having the books, reading the books, even if only for five minutes. And that builds vocabulary beyond the words you would use in everyday life. So these simple things really do have an impact and parents need to know that. Can we talk about the the the, uh, the long road? Because I'm just thinking about my own journey. I told you my grandmother was a children's librarian. I had tons of kids' books, you know, cricket magazine, poetry. Like I had so much. But I was a kid who couldn't sit still. I was on the move constantly. Um, and I didn't really come to the joy of reading or went back to the joy of reading, I guess would be a better way of saying it, until I was sort of done university because I had to read so much for school and then you have to read textbooks and like I didn't really get into like literature until I was you know in my 20s um and and I I read like crazy now and and my kids I share stories with them we like we do we there's so much in our literary lives but that was I didn't get to it because if you were tracking me as a seven, eight, 10 year old, you would have gone, you would have written me off. You would have said, she's just never going to be much of a reader. Like that's just, but here I am like, you know, in the long run, it all worked out. So what is that long journey? What's that long tail? I think the, the important thing for parents to focus on is making sure that kids have had positive experiences with reading Mm -hmm. and making sure they have the foundational skills to do it well. And then beyond that, like be okay with whatever it is that they're interested in reading, because it is a long, it's a long life and in different seasons, you'll focus on different kinds of reading. When I was working on my book, I was reading academic reports. I wasn't reading novels or, (laughs) but when I wrote, when I interviewed authors for Kirkus Reviews, I was reading some wonderful, amazing new literature. (laughs) So even as adults, sometimes the reading we're doing is (laughs) work-related. It's not all about just a love of literature. And we're, so in terms of the goal for parents, you want to have a skilled, fluent reader who could read a novel if they wanted to. And if they don't want to, they can read and understand their apartment lease and their mortgage and the, the ballot they're voting on in election so that they can be you know, positive contributors to society. So I think we just have to kind of expand our um, understanding of what what we're really after. Such a great point. And I, you know, some, I'm going to just give my own personal criticism to, to what they put on the educational required reading list in most schools is pretty narrow. You know, we're not reading a lot of sci-fi, you know, I mean, not every, I mean, Hamlet seems to be on, you know, or the Merchant of Venice. I, we still have Shakespeare on everybody's curriculum and kids just like check out at grade nine because they're not in, they think everything is going to be Shakespeare and they don't know that, you know, you can read The Boy in the Straight Pajamas or Shawshank Redemption or some of these, or Harry Potter to your point, right? That That maybe we could do better with our curriculum, don't you think? Absolutely. And then I think also there needs to be greater support for school libraries and librarians has, for kids to have that experience of making some choices around what they read. So, you know, X, Y, and Z may be assigned for the curriculum for the last 20 years or whatever, but also give kids the opportunity to explore and find what they're interested in and have enough books easily accessible so that if they do fall in love with historical fiction or fantasy or sci-fi or whatever it is, that there's more that we can recommend and more that we can give them. Yeah. Um, Is there anything you want to make sure that parents take away from our conversation that I haven't asked you about or delved into? 
Well, just the the urgency of it. So I tried to give the book the most dramatic title I could think of. So it's really <laughs> for our lives, just to hammer home that literacy or an illiteracy and under literacy is all implicated in kind of the biggest social issues that we face. If you see studies of literacy levels within prisons, extraordinarily low you know, or even relationships to health outcomes. So there are tens of millions, I'm in Wisconsin, but there are tens of millions of Americans who can't read well enough to understand like their prescription instructions or to, you know, navigate the healthcare system. So they're real. It's not just about a love of literature. It really is about the ability to pursue a meaningful career and be a productive citizen. And so it really is reading for our lives. And with that said, those are sort of long-term adult issues, but so much of that groundwork for successful reading is laid in the years prior to school. So if we can do whatever we can to encourage parents to do their part and to know that the, those little things really do matter, the talking, the reading. Yeah, the, sim- the simple things that we don't need to get our knickers in a knots and feel like we have to be an expert. We just need to in- stay positive, engaged, babble, talk, respond, read, enjoy, that trust, trust that natural process is actually making a difference is what I'm hearing. Yes, absolutely. And then on my, my website is just mayasmart.com. So M-A-Y-A smart.com. And I have a free resources section. It's mayasmart.com slash resources. And every day or every week, rather, not every day. <laughs> <laughs> You're a busy lady. <laughs> every week we post new book lists or we have something called read with me recipes, which are really simple recipes that have certain spelling patterns that you can work on with little ones. So admittedly, they're not the tastiest recipes. <laughs> <laughs> they have limited vocabulary and it's an opportunity. It's just sort of a reminder of those everyday ways. You mentioned earlier signs or t-shirts. So there are those these everyday ways to support our kids' reading skills. And so the the resources section of the website tries to just remind people, you know, alphabet scavenger hunt or playing I spy or all those things. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I remember many a car trip looking for let, uh, identifying letters on license plates and on street going through the alphabet. I mean, that was that, that was my childhood version of not having technology in my hands or onboard movies. <laughs> we spent our time actually picking out letters in the alphabet. It matters. Absolutely. Uh, I will definitely post the um, uh, the website uh, in the show notes so that people can just have a live link to click through. And thank you for those free resources. And thank you for your time. Thank you for your important work. It was great to meet you. So wonderful to meet you. I appreciate the great questions that you asked. Thank you so much. As you know, it takes a village to make a podcast. So thanks to my team, including Max Cotter, my editor and technician, as well as the crew at H2O Digital. This podcast was recorded in Toronto, Canada. We acknowledge the land we are meeting on is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.